Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Welcome to our AOPA Pilot Protection Services Podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I'm proud to be the author of the Flywell Columns in the magazine, as well as uh, making contributions to our online offerings, including, of course, this podcast. And today, once again, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Gary Crump, who's Director of Medical Certification at AOPA. Hey, Jonathan. Today, we're going to discuss the air that I breathe. There was a, a band from my era called The Hollies, and they had a song with that title, and it went something like, I'm not going to sing, sometimes all I need is the air that I breathe, which is, of course, is inaccurate, because we need it all the time. Gary, you've heard me do this at, at live events. If there's a nice big audience, I'll ask if uh, pilots in the audience use oxygen, and about three or four percent of the hands will go up, and I will then say, well, you're a bunch of idiots. You all use oxygen. It's called breathing. So let's first of all go over the FARs as they relate to the use of oxygen in an unpressurized aircraft by a very typical GA pilot. Everyone thinks they know them, but let's just make sure that they know them. You want to uh, state? Let me think. I believe it's up to 12,500 feet. There is no oxygen requirement. And then above 12.5, it's uh, after 30 minutes at that altitude. Correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't looked at that regulation in a while, actually. That sounds right. And then uh, it's above 14,000. You've got to use it continuously. They say that you should have available and use. But the key thing is when you look at how those levels were chosen, I've heard the story that it had something to do with a congressman flying over the Rockies and, you know, that's how long it took him to transit. And that was the altitude he had to cross. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty thick guy. I'm not a 22-year-old athlete, but I'm a pretty thick guy. I run a few miles every day. I'm in reasonably good shape. But I can tell you, if I measure my pulse oximeter, um, it's a little device that clips on your finger, which you know well about, Gary. And it's, you know, a right. few, it's best few bucks you can spend. Definitely. 5,000 feet. My oxygen saturation, we'll talk about that in a second, has dropped to the level that if I was a patient coming into a hospital under Medicare rules, I would have to be given oxygen. So I'm a big fan, as you know, of supplemental oxygen. So let's talk about some of the issues as it relates to that. First of all, Gary, tell me, why do you think it is that so many pilots are so resistant to using supplemental oxygen in their GA aircraft? That's a good question, Jonathan. I think it has to do a little bit maybe with ego, or maybe we're cheap and we just don't want to make the investment, even, even in a portable oxygen system. Or we think, I, I live at sea level, I never fly above 8,000 feet anyway. All of those are reasonable excuses for guys with uh, the mentality of, like me, but you can become hypoxic at relatively low altitudes. I say, of course, that it's additive. The effects are additive. And anyone who's gone on you know, like a three-hour flight and that evening, you think, I've got a bit of a headache mm -hmm. or I just don't feel quite right. You know what that's called? That's called hypoxia, right? And right. if you're getting that headache, you know, if you think about it, every cell in the human body needs oxygen. 
and you're depriving your cells of something that's readily available. And if you deprive a cell of oxygen for long enough, what happens to that cell? It dies. So the point you make about the cost, the cost is minuscule compared to the cost of avgas. You know, I mean, you don't have to have a fancy system with a regulator. You can just have a cylinder and, you know, masks and nasal cannula. It's not expensive. It's peanuts compared to the cost of fuel. But and additionally, you know, it's interesting that pilots other than doctors are the only people that naturally get hold of oxygen and use it. So do you get any questions coming into uh, Aeromedical about uh, about oxygen and standards and how someone's health might affect their use of the stuff? Yeah, we do get questions about that. And it's it's more associated with a lot of it has to do with availability. And it is amazing to me. In fact, one of our mutual friends, uh, a senior AME who lives down in Florida, fly, who flies a TBM, we, we were talking just a few weeks ago. He was actually, when we were on the phone, he was actually finishing up the purchase of oxygen to refill his portable canister bottle that he carries with him in the airplane. And he was appalled at the fact that the availability of oxygen has changed so much. It is, it's ridiculous now that he had to get a physician's prescription to purchase oxygen for his airplane. And I've heard this anecdotally over the years, too. And uh, we've heard discussions about, well, what's the difference between industrial oxygen and medical oxygen and oxygen that you use in your airplane? There's no difference. It's all oxygen. O2 is O2. Sometimes it's in a different colored bottle, but there, there just seems to be this amazing marketing scam, I would call it, going on that makes it so difficult for pilots to get oxygen in, in many places. Now, they maybe can buy it at the FBO fairly inexpensively, but uh, the availability of it has been one of the biggest complaints we've had over the years, and that's, it still amazes me that we have that kind of a, a challenge for something as, that we take so much for granted. Yeah, I've, I've actually never had an issue with it. Normally pay about 70 or 80 bucks to fill the cylinders. So, you know, and that, that provides hours and hours and hours of oxygen. Uh, right. Given the resistance that you've stated from people using it, you know, maybe 25-year-old pilots who are fit as a fiddle don't want to use it. But as people get older or they have cardiovascular disease or lung disease or they're poorly hydrated or they're obese or they're smokers. Right. All those things impact your ability to absorb oxygen, or if you've got any degree of anemia, all those things impact your ability uh, to absorb uh, oxygen, so need to be taken in, into consideration. So, I mean, the simple expedient is, as you ascend in an aeroplane, there are less molecules per square foot of air, per cubic foot of air. There are less molecules of nitrogen, of oxygen, of carbon dioxide, so you have to breathe deeper and faster to get the same amount of oxygen in and it does cause problems as i said people get headaches at the end of a flight that's a sign of hypoxia but other things can happen so some of the symptoms gary are things like visual disturbances either seeing like uh, floaters crossing your visual field or your visual field becomes narrower or you may get abdominal pain or you may feel sick or you may feel that there's just not something quite right. So always having it available is, to my mind, sensible. Now, many pilots, GA pilots, have never even heard of the concept of doing a hypobaric chamber. That means a, a chamber where there's low pressure of oxygen. Something I've done a couple of times, and I find it enormously helpful, 
to understand how I behave when I'm in a hypoxic environment. Let's talk a little bit, Gary, about people who fly jets, and they have to learn about explosive decompression. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. It, it's Fortunately, it's not something that happens very often, but even more dangerous are the, and, and mysterious are the unfortunate events where there is not an explosive decompression, but a, a slow decompression. And um, I think probably everyone re- remembers uh, Payne Stewart, professional golfer who lost his life in a depressurization accident years ago. And we all read about him from time to time where an aircraft you know, is on an IFR flight plan and just heads out over the ocean and they scramble the military and they pull up close and they see no signs of life in the airplane and it you know runs out of fuel and crashes and you know in most cases those were probably related to some type of a a slow decompression and the and the pilot became incapacitated so subtly that he he or she didn't even realize what was going on so yeah it's a it's very sad when that happens but fortunately it doesn't it doesn't happen very often but it sure makes a lot of makes a lot of headlines when it does happen yeah, and if you've uh, if you've ever gone, and, uh, like I say, I've been through one of these hyperbaric chambers a couple of times, and you experience how you behave, and everyone behaves differently, and the good ones yes. film you and show you how your reaction times change with advancing hypoxia, whether it's caused by a slow decompression, a failure to compress, or an explosive decompression. The other thing is, you know, people who have experienced an explosive decompression. Yeah, it's a pretty frightening thing. You can imagine if the cockpit glass breaks and you suddenly lose pressure, what's going to happen is you're going to develop a cloud in the cockpit. You're not going to be able to see anything. You're not going to be able to breathe. There's broken glass, well, plastics, I guess, flying around, and there's klaxons blaring, and it's all highly, highly disorienting. So I recommend people think about going to uh, one of these hyperbaric chambers and doing the training. It costs a couple of hundred bucks, and I think it's well worth it. So let's talk about another perspective, which is in today's fast, rapidly ascending turbocharged airplanes, you can actually cause another problem. As you ascend from a ground level to, to altitude, bubbles of gas can form and it can cause what's called caissons disease, which was first described in people building bridges and working in um, so-called caissons, like hollow tubes sunk into a riverbed where they're dealing with pressure changes, sort of like scuba divers get with ascent, you can get the same thing in an aeroplane. And that causes, again, uh, visual disturbances. It can cause a strange rash on your skin, a sort of uh, a cobwebby type looking rash. And it can cause pain, pain in your skin, which can be quite, quite severe. And pre-oxygenating, breathing oxygen as you ascend, and, you know, one of these turbocharged hot singles, I think that's something worth knowing about. So let's talk a little bit about passengers. What do we do for passengers in our airplanes? I always take the, the time to ask people about a medical history. And is there anything that might predispose them to hypoxia? I mean, that I'm going to want to put an oxygen mask on them. And the first group of people I'm thinking about are not people dealing with any particular illness, but kids. You know, is that something that you've dealt with, Gary? People asking you about taking their children flying or someone else's children flying? Yeah, we we get that occasionally. And uh, a lot of times it's more in the context of hearing protection and uh, wearing a good, uh, again, a noise-canceling headset or some type of hearing protection. But, you know, obviously most of our experiences 
are on the airlines, 121 air carriers, and we get the passenger briefing and, you know, put your mask on first and then deal with everybody else, including your kids. Yes. But uh, hopefully uh, GA pilots will do that, especially if they're flying pressurized airplanes. It should be, and I believe it uh, is appropriate to have a pre-flight briefing for all the passengers to show them what's going to happen if uh, if we do have a decompression that requires use of oxygen. So, you know, it's a simple simple thing takes 10 seconds to explain all that and uh, it's certainly and i think the kids get a kick out of it because they you know, they feel like they're you know they're they're part of the crew when they're when they're uh, having all that explained to them so i think it in- enhances young kids experience in flying general aviation just to just to know that you know here's some things that could happen it's probably not going to happen but here's what we're going to do just in case it does and probably enhances their level of confidence in the pilot skill as well Yeah, actually, that's absolutely right. I mean, I always do a pre-flight briefing with anyone I take flying. And I recently had a uh, an email from a pilot who was going to take his kids flying for the first time. And he was asking for advice about oxygen. And I, it, it recalled my days of taking my kids flying when they were young. The first time I tried it, I stupidly, you know, and I wanted them to have oxygen available. And I didn't want there to be you know, problems as I was ascending and having to try and deal with them as I'm trying to fly the airplane. So what I did was I brought all the equipment home. I, I put um, two seats together and then two further seats behind that and pretended we were in the airplane and I gave them the oxygen cannula to play with and get used to. And it just became natural before we even went in the airplane. Uh, and One thing that happens, you know, we know in medicine, when people are hypoxic because of shock, because they've either had a heart attack or they've they've lost blood or been in a motor vehicle accident, if they're hypoxic, one of the things it can cause is a combative attitude. People actually can get violent. Otherwise, nice, sedate, happy people, they get shocked, they get hypoxic, they get violent. The last thing you want in an aeroplane is a passenger who suddenly becomes aggressive and violent because they're hypoxic. So take the time to learn about your passengers and their medical conditions and always consider using oxygen or staying at a much lower uh, altitude. And of course, the same thing relates to animals. I used to take my dog flying and I had this wonderful contraption that looked like one of those, those cones that you put over a dog when they've had surgery. And you can buy these cones that are kind of closed in at the front and they, um, they've got a spongy collar and they pipe oxygen in so you can keep your dog uh, well oxygenated. And I would also put uh, headphones on my pup and he got used to it and he, you know, he didn't fuss and it meant I was protecting his ears. So that's always a, a nice thought. You know, I'm a bit of a music buff. There was a West Coast band many years ago that I particularly liked. They were called Quicksilver Messenger Service. Oh, yeah. Um, and they, they had a song, one of my favorite songs called Fresh Air. And it has the line in it, have another hit of fresh air in the morning. I actually think, given that they recorded in the 1960s, that they weren't talking about oxygen. I think they were talking (laughs) about having a hit of something else. Probably so. (laughs) Having a hit of oxygen is is a good thing. Think about it. Consider it. Talk to your local uh, mechanic. Talk to your FBO. And you can always pick up the phone and call Pilot Protection Services. So with that, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Have a good day, everyone, and fly well. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. 
Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.